electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast. This really was kind of a GameStop moment for the art world. Non-fungible assets breaking records. A $69 million price for digital art will get into the rise of alternative investments with Alexis Ahanian, Reddit co-founder. This is a manifestation of, frankly, changing markets and changing investor bases and, and folks who are looking for ways to put capital into alternative assets. And vaccinations ramping up, which means concerts could be coming back. Festivals are setting hopeful lineups and the music world is setting a safe stage. 300 Entertainment Record label CEO Kevin Lyles. Even with the vaccinations uh, going at the pace that they're going, I think we still should wear masks, you know, follow the CDC rules. But you know something about music, man, whether you have a mask on, uh, uh, not, it just uplifts your spirits. We've got those interviews today, but first, COVID vaccine rollout and monitoring the markets like only we can. I don't think there'd be anything better than the Squawk Stack. It's Friday, March 12th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box. This is CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. All right, guys. Here is our new regular feature that, Joe, did you come up with this Monday or Tuesday? The Squawk Stack? Um, it was a GameStop day. I think, what was it, Tuesday? Right. Monday. I'm sorry? Tuesday. I don't know. We're working on about a week of this. We're working right on Right now a we've week. got the Dow Futures, the NASDAQ, okay. Bitcoin, GameStop, 10-year. Okay. I, I, would, I would put Beeple in there if you could somehow put that in, it. which we can't because it's not part of it. No but, quote. There's no quote, that's for sure. But those are, that's, you know, the S&P, some people think we should have the S&P, but we definitely need the NASDAQ, and, and then the Dow's been hitting the highs. So it, it's, a, it's a judgment call. Um, GameStop, you know, needs to earn its place every day, depending on, you know, it's got to move 100%, I think. Just 4% yeah, moves the, not big enough for you? <laughs> the basal level is 100%, which uh, that's an average day. And then the tenure, it was weird yesterday when, when Lagarde said that, it looked like it was off to the races. It was like 148. And, it, and that's the lead yeah. story in the journal. I don't know. This is, you know. That's what they say about newspapers, right? By the time you read them, they're already yesterday's news. It's out but, of date. 1.6%. Yeah, the, yeah the, the ECB plans to uh, step up efforts to keep rates low. But uh, then during the day, well, it started. And we Santelli. saw it yesterday. Yeah, it started creeping up from 148. It was back to 154. I can't believe we're talking about individual basis point moves in, in a 10-year. <laughs> but that's, that's the way it is, I guess. Um, you, Andrew, I asked uh, sales, uh, CNBC sales, they, unless uh, they didn't get the deal book call um, was the line? Have you? Have you are you? Maybe you, it's a quiet period. You in negotiations to sponsor this deal book? The New York Times uh, to, to sponsor the squad you know, stack. If there's an, you know, sometimes when there are negotiations like this, there's an NDA involved. I can't acknowledge where I can't acknowledge the state of play. 
But, you don't want but, to talk about it. You don't want to talk about it. All right. Uh, but, um, but cut, you know, when, when there's news, there will be news, and we'll make the news, and we'll. You could break that. Well, you news, know, since you own, we'll you know, break, since you since you are a deal. But, but uh, you know what? You it, it wouldn't hurt for you to be like a. I mean, we shouldn't really talk about it here because people will know. But to be like a stalking bid, like the you know oh, what stalking, I mean? I could be the like, stalking horse. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Like the person that holds up, you know, at the auctions or like looking around You're and then kind it's of like ruining just it's you. And they go, okay. oh, no, I was. Yeah, can you do that? I. By the way, the, the natural sponsor is IHOP, right? I mean, let's be honest at this point. I isn't thought that, about a or Denny's. About, Let's create I a competition about, no, here. Right. I thought about a better one, but they don't advertise. My favorite place where I want Elon Musk to have all the charging stations: Waffle House. Waffle, oh, Waffle House. House. And they don't advertise. This could be the first time. I mean, it'd be a big move into it. I mean, some people think they should go into Google or digital or you know that type of stuff that that caters to who might want a waffle. I don't think there'd be anything better than the Squawk Stack to you. Although they're better known for waffles, maybe that's. I it. think there's some opportunity here. Well, we need the deal book stocking horse. Deal book stocking horse. But did we milk okay. this enough? Syrup we've this milked, enough? We've milked, this we've milked it as much as we can milk. We've syruped it as much <laughs> yeah. as we can. President Biden's going to be directing states to make all adult Americans eligible to receive COVID vaccines. He says by May 1st. He made that announcement in his first primetime address last evening. All adult Americans will be eligible to get a vaccine no later than May 1. That's much earlier than expected. Let me be clear. That doesn't mean everyone's going to have that shot immediately, but it means you'll be able to get in line beginning May 1. Now, the president urged Americans to continue to wear masks, to social distance and get vaccinated when it is your turn. He said there is light at the end of the tunnel. If we do all this, if we do our part, if we do this together, By July the 4th, there's a good chance you, your families and friends will be able to get together in your backyard or in your neighborhood and have a cookout and a barbecue and celebrate Independence Day. President's address came at the halfway point of his first 100 days, one year after COVID was declared a pandemic and just hours after he signed that $1.9 trillion relief bill, Joe. The just reading some of this, you know, the, the, the bill was signed yesterday and I sort of now, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot. And the, the big story on uh, on market watch and other places. When will you actually get your fourteen hundred dollar check? White House says it will arrive as early as this weekend. And I was starting to think maybe that's why they, the yields are, are, you know, maybe onwards and upwards because it's now it's done. I mean, there's no more. Yes. Well, we're going to vote and vote here. I mean, it's signed. It's signed, sealed, I delivered, mean, and everything else. You heard what Jeremy Sieg- Siegel and it's said big. yesterday. It- and it's big, yeah. yeah. And it's not just, it's, it's sort of a, you know, it, it's, there's a lot in it, as we've talked about. But there's, for, for poverty, children's poverty, for uh, the Affordable Care Act, it, it takes care of a lot. It's not, it's a relief bill, but maybe not just a COVID relief bill. It's like a, a relief a bill for, for everything. And I think that maybe that is part of what we're seeing today. Uh, Novavax. Have you guys gotten a lot of tweets? People, it's like, why do we talk about yes. Pfizer and Moderna? Why aren't you talking right. about Everybody Novavax? Everybody loves, yep, exactly. It's like, do you just really like that vaccine? Or is it possible you own some of that stock? Just uh, in the interest of disclosure, could you? They all own Although it. I have to and say, they're mad at us for not talking about it. The news today is pretty impressive. Well, I know. Yeah. It's very good. But you know what? It's not like they're doing it out of the... the 
goodness of their heart for health reasons. It's, you know, they own it. Anyway, Novavax shares are surging. We're, we're, we understand. We understand. The company, is it any different than, than guests and everything else? People own things. The company said its vaccine was 96% effective in late-stage trials in protecting against the original strain we're talking about of the coronavirus, 86% against a more contagious uh, UK variant. Uh, and what about South Africa? Well, a smaller trial conducted in South Africa found it was about 55% effective against the mutated strain uh, that's prevalent down there. Novavax said in all trials, the vaccine was 100% effective uh, protect, protecting against serious illness and death. And when you're talking about one percentage point or uh, that's what you can say about all the, the all four of them, if you want to count all four, three, four, whatever it is, uh, it, that prevents the most serious issues, mostly prevents hospitalization, certainly prevents death. 94, 95, 96. I would even say J&Js if you did two. That'd probably be up there as well. They all seem kind of similar. That's what I would I, wonder, too. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and when you're getting, you know, you're, I, what about, even though it's thousands of people, when you're trying to get to the limits of, of, of calling it one percentage point better, do we really think we have that type of limits, uh, you know, that type of no, resolution. because you're talking about exact. limited scale trials. Right. right. You're talking about limited scale trials, even if it's 30 or 40,000 people that are in these trials. Right. You know, 1% is not necessarily 1% when you start rolling that out into the broader population. You just don't know. Um, I would say they're all very close. Where is Novavax in terms of the approval process? They haven't gotten the EUA yet, right? No EUA. I think they got to go through the normal stuff. Right. They go, there's going to be the panel yeah. meeting, recommend it. And then you go and with this but, stuff, the, it's like the they, next day they, they are or they do it really quick. And we, we we need right. to supply at this point for another like what month or something. And, and look at what a huge difference it's made having a third candidate that has gotten the EUA, having Johnson and Johnson on the market has yeah. made a huge impact. And that's why right. you're now seeing President Biden saying he's going to open it up to everybody by May 1st. Um, again, not, not that you'll have a vaccine in your arm by May 1st, but you will be eligible if you can get an appointment. And that's going to be entirely dependent on supplies. You know, it's very interesting when and if they ever if they ever get to the point where they can um, ethically do what they call challenge studies, challenge real what a real study would be considered a challenge study where they'd put 100 people in the room in a room. Yeah. Effectively, they give they give everybody covid and they'd see what yeah, happens. But you that's not that's what like these studies are. That's completely unethical. <laughs> No, that's right. what, I, what I, that's what I that's what I said. But yeah. there will be a, there will come a time where we will have therapeutics that are so good that they will do they'll end up doing challenge studies on vaccines. They, they've done that before. Uh, once you, once you At have that point, a, who once cares? Have, because if they've got therapeutics that are that good, you know, well, you don't need the vaccine they, as much. It's not as important. Well, but then you'd want to know. But you'd want to know what the actual what what the true efficacy of of these are. You were talking about what's one percent versus two percent versus three percent. You know, which one's actually better? Yeah, it just by the, the time that we can actually really do find those tests, out, it's going to be a move. Is point. to actually do challenge studies, and that'll happen. That'll I bet you that'll happen in a couple of years from now when they've good actually to started to to to, to, to get know. to a point where they could do it ethically. Since, it's, since they vary in the T-cell response versus just the antibody response, and that might play into how yeah. long the immunity is good for, yeah, that might be interesting sure. to see yeah. which one. And I could see a difference there. Maybe one is you know, much better five years out, for example, which would be nice if, as long as it doesn't change every year. Hey, Becky, I didn't realize it. We just got yeah. a tweet. It's true. BBC, uh, yeah. The U.K. is actually doing a challenge study. They oh. announced the challenge oh study gosh. two weeks ago. With 90 people, young people, 
uh, ages 18 to 30, and they're only going to choose healthy people to do it. 18 to 30, they're going to get paid to do it. And the idea is that they're going to be challenged. There'll be a challenge. They'll, they'll be given. They'll be given the vaccine. Well, they'll, yes. they'll all be exposed to it. To it. And the idea it's is that yeah. uh, they'll then be monitored uh, for that whole period well, of time. Then let me let me I just ask: they'll use if, if Regeneron or other if other things, if in fact it gets it. it they, they get it. But my guess right. would be is if you're confining it to people ages 18 to 30 or whatever who are all healthy and it's only 90 people, the odds are very low that any of them are going to have a bad outcome to it just because, I mean, if you really want to test the efficacy, I think you should go after the older co- cohorts, people who would be much more likely to have a bad outcome if they got right. COVID. Right. I, you know, well, like that, if you want to show to... the protection. <laughs> I don't see that happening. I, like, he, um... I don't either. But... Uh, but the, the point is that over time, challenge studies will be the way we'll actually figure out what the true efficacy of all of these things are. And, and, they, and I'm sure they will do them with older groups that, as, as, as time goes on. I don't know how much faith I'd have in that study if you were only using 18 to 30 year olds and they were all healthy and it was 90 of them. I, I don't know. I, it, I, I see your point. But if it, it, that to me doesn't seem like a true study. It won't, to find it out won't worst be a true scenarios. study for people who are 80 years old, but it will be a true study for people who are between yeah. 18 and 30 yeah. years old. So you'll find out the results of that. Next on Squawk Pod, Reddit co-founder and venture capitalist Alexis Ohanian says investing is not like your parents' portfolio. NFTs, sure, but he's got a thing for sports trading cards. I have been collecting, I think, what what is now the world's largest uh, Serena Williams uh, card collection uh, over the last year, year and a half. <laughs> and he's investing in a new platform to treat your collectibles like stocks. We'll hear from the founder of Alt. We have people who have an average balance of around $2,000. And we're starting to bring some of the high-end traders who honestly are trading in the million-dollar range. So this is the new age lemonade stand. I think I'm going to let my kids buy whatever Pokemon cards they want from now on. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. The Beeple NFT uh, auctioned off by Christie's yesterday went for a record-shattering $69 million, potentially making a marking, I should say, a watershed moment for the crypto asset market. And Robert Frank joins us with more on the latest. And I don't know, we're we calling it a craze. What are we calling it, Robert? We don't know yet. I mean, this really was kind of a GameStop moment for the art world. There were 33 bidders from 11 countries over two weeks. It started at $100 within 20 minutes, shot to $1 million yesterday morning. Minutes before the auction was set to close, the bids went to $22 million to $60 million. Final sale price with fees, as you mentioned, $69.3 million. No word yet on who the buyer is. 91% of the bidders had never bought or bid on anything at Christie's before. Most were under 40 years old, meaning, Andrew, this is a whole new crowd of buyers and collectors. Christie's saying most of these bidders had large crypto holdings or crypto companies. Beeple tweeting a digitized Mona Lisa with the words, the next chapter. Lots of uh, questions about what that means. 
Now, the first 5,000 days, that's the piece that was auctioned off, is now the third most expensive work ever auctioned by a living artist. But the number one and number two works by Jeff Koons and David Hockney, they were sold by collectors, so the artist didn't profit from that. Beeple was the seller here, so he gets most of the proceeds. And since NFTs give artists royalties on any future sale, he's going to make money if this ever resells. So, guys, Beeple, as Christie said yesterday, is a very rich man today. A guy from 39-year-old dad from Wisconsin who had never sold a work of art before last year. Andrew? So, so Robert, one of the questions I have about the royalty structure of these NFTs does the artist determine what the percentage of the royalty is for the future? So if, the, if this piece of art gets sold 10 years from now, 20 years from now, or if other pieces of art get sold, does who determines what the, I don't want to call it a kickback, but what, what money gets, gets sent back to the artist? I think it's determined by whatever the selling platform here was. And this was Christie's in partnership with another auction company that does NFTs. Typically, the royalty is about 10%. So plus or minus, he will get 10% of anything. Now, remember about uh, three weeks ago, one of his works that was purchased by a collector for less than $100,000 was flipped by that collector for $6.6 million. So presumably, he got about a half million or more from that sale, even though he didn't own it anymore. So again, this is why so many artists are celebrating NFTs because they, they see work selling at auction for far more than they originally sold them for. And now they get a piece of that. All right. Robert, hey, Becky, you've got a question? I don't know if we have time, but Robert, you cover the art world. Is this the same as watching auctions for, for art run up or do you think this is weirder? Look, I mean, the entire art world, like I said, this is a GameStop moment. This is a new group of technology-enabled buyers who had never been in this market before telling the $60 billion a year art world that what they value and how they value it is different from how it's been for a long time. So the, the whole art world is scratching their heads trying to figure out what this means this morning. I know. People say that about Rothko's, too. Anyway, Robert, thank you. Good to see you. Joining us right now to talk more about the crypto revolution, the non-fungible uh, T thingy. What does it stand for? Non-fungible token. Sorry. Revolution is Alexis Ohanian. He's the founder of venture capital firm 776 and co-founder of Reddit. Also with us is Lior Avidar, the alt founder and CEO. That's a leading company in alternative investments. So it all kind of ties together a little bit. Gentlemen, welcome to both of you. It's good to see you. Good morning. Good morning. Alexis, I'm going to start things off with you because I realize alt is not really NFT. You guys are talking about real trading cards, but I also know you understand all of these digital movements, things that are happening fast. So let's talk a little bit about what you're seeing in NFTs. Do you think this movement's for real? Yeah. I mean, I think, look, NFTs are just underlying technology and there is a lot of noise for sure. Uh, but there are some real indicators that like this is a manifestation of, frankly, changing markets and changing investor bases and, and folks who are looking for ways to put capital into alternative assets, uh, things that, you know, historically would have been really hard to move around like art uh, and pretty illiquid are becoming more and more liquid thanks to technology. And NFTs are on one side of it, you know, where instead of the canvas, it's code, uh, being able to sort of specify a limited quantity of the piece. And uh, things like trading cards on the other end, where 
by creating technology like Alt to make it as easy to buy and sell trading cards as it is to buy and sell stocks, we're bringing the same kind of real-time liquidity to an asset class that historically hasn't been available uh, to nearly as many people and nearly as easily. So, Lior, let's let's talk about how you got into this, what, what, what Alt is and why you started it. Yeah, Alt is an investment platform that allows people to trade uh, uh, cards as easy uh, as stocks. And I've been investing in weird things and alternative assets since 2016. And I got into it because uh, it meant a lot to me. I loved investing in players and relating to them. And there was just a ton of friction throughout the years, whether it was fraud uh, or high fees. And so I really felt that there needed to be a new type of infrastructure. And so what you're seeing in a lot of these marketplaces is that there is a change of guard in the underlying infrastructure. What you guys do is authenticate and store some of these cards so that people can say they understand exactly how much their cards are worth, and then they can trade them with the knowledge that it's already been vetted, right? Yeah, so everything on our exchange, we do pre-authenticated by third-party uh, rating agencies, and everything is already in custody. And so we're removing the friction that already exists to trade these cards back and forth. And so when you're on our platform, all you have to do is basically look around, figure out what you like, buy it, and it'll instantaneously transfer the ownership into your own vault. Alexis, this is the biggest investment I think you've made with 776 to date. Is that right? Yeah, it's actually my biggest uh, personal investment, uh, you know, that I've led actually ever. That's right. So why? Why? What? What attracted you? What made you think I, this is it? I candidly, I have been collecting. I think what I, what is now the world's largest uh, Serena Williams uh, card collection uh, over the last year, year and a half. And, <laughs> and I, at first, look, at first, I, I was gifting these things to her, and and initially, she was like, "Could you just get me, you know, maybe some jewelry?" And, and over the last year and a half, as she's seen the, the sort of efficiency in the market take hold and the values go up, uh, she's, I think she's been pretty happy with my, uh, my gifting. Um, I, I realized, you know, I was lucky enough in 2012 to be an early investor in Coinbase at a time when it was really hard to buy and sell Bitcoin. And it was, you know, the best investors were still tracking everything in a spreadsheet. And here I was now a year or so ago where it was still really hard to transact and buy and sell these assets. And the best investors, and myself, myself as well, um, was tracking it in a spreadsheet. And, and so the pattern matching here was really straightforward. And, and, you know, seeing, you know, having had the opportunity to work with Lior now for almost a decade, uh, it was pretty easy to get to high conviction and, and want to be a part of this. So, Alexis, what you're talking about, though, is the real world. You are such a digital expert on things, the Coinbase and all of these other things that you've jumped into. But you're not talking about those NFTs, just something that doesn't exist in the real world, something that's just part of the blockchain. You're talking about something like behind you, what you can say, here's on my wall. Here's what I can hold. Here's what I can actually hand to somebody. You think that that will always have kind of the upper hand over some of these new things we're talking about? I think right now, so much of what this this plays into and what Lior referenced as well is it's nostalgia, right? For so many of us, this is these are things that we have a fondness for because we grew up idolizing them or wanting them or collecting them. And and right now, the vast majority of the dollars that are able to invest are in the bank accounts of folks who have these feelings, who who feel the not only the nostalgia, but but also the appreciation for the art and the scarcity and everything else. I do think long term, you know, technology always moves us in a path towards a better user experience. The good news is when you build a pure software business like Alt, you know, a fintech platform, it, at the end of the day, it's all ones and zeros anyway. And so actually moving to that future where I think the new generation 
uh, Gen Z is going to feel a lot more of an affinity to the digital first way. Uh, you know, we're, we're building all the pipes. And so it actually makes that transition becomes even easier when you've already got uh, a digital framework. Lior, how, how many customers do you have right now? And, and what's the average portfolio that, they, that they're showing? Is this somebody who's got tens of thousands of dollars or even more in merchandise? Or are these people who maybe have 10 or 15 cards that they've got? Well, we're just getting started. So we have around 1,500 accounts already on the platform, and it does range. So we have people who have an average balance of around $2,000, and we're starting to bring some of the high-end traders who honestly are trading in the million dollars, uh, in the million dollar range. So the goal is to have a fluid platform. The people on here, you're getting people who are honestly in college. This is the new age lemonade stand. They're hustling, they're trading cards, they're paying their way through college. And then you have people who have been collecting this or have got, even gotten intergenerational wealth and need a place to be able to transact it in the seven, eight figure range. You know, we, we keep hearing that there are all these new retail traders and there are people who have a lot of extra money. Some of the stimulus has kind of gone into their pockets. They haven't been able to spend it other places. Do you get the sense that that money is making its way into this market, too? Or are most of these investors people who have been doing it for years? I think it's a combination. I would say most of the people who are coming into this space have started to make their disposable income. They're probably in their late 30s. And they collected these things between the ages of 8 to 14. And one of the really unique properties of anything that is a store of culture or store of value is this 25-year effect. And so you find people who this reminds them of when they were 8 to 14. And now that they've started getting some of this money, and maybe some of it is related to the stimulus, but I would say more of it is just associated with age. And so I think as we start seeing more and more people from that 1996 or late 90s era gain wealth, more of it is actually going to be put into stores of culture and value. And, and Leo, the way you make money is you charge a fee that's based on what, the valuation of your portfolio? You pay that fee every month? So one of the unique properties that we've done to help educate people is introduce something like the, we call it the alt value. You can think of it like the Zestimate or the Kelly Blue Book. And so in order to reduce the friction of going to all these different liquidity providers and figure out how, how much something is worth, we provide it for you. And so we do calculate the alt value in real time. And so any transaction, we do 1.5% on the actual transacted value. And if you just store things with us, uh, we charge a fee based on the alt value of your entire aggregate portfolio. Doesn't that in entice you or wouldn't it, it kind of incentivize you to give people an inflated valuation on, on their portfolio? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see us. That's not our main set of business. Like we do want to create money from the transaction. I think storage long term will almost go to zero. And so most people want to actually transact and do something. And so over time, I would hope it goes to zero. And the goal of the company is really to increase the transparency and liquidity of what we're trying to do. And so if we were to do that, I would say we'd be going against our mission of really trying to bring alternative assets mainstream. So uh, hopefully that's not something we do long term. Alexis, let me let me ask you a broad question, just because you have been around for a while watching all of these things. Your take in terms of how much money is moving quickly in and out of these things, if that liquidity is part of the you know, broader brush of liquidity we've seen because of the Fed's policies, because of the additional stimulus money that's going out. I mean, how permanent do you think some of these things, and I'm not talking just about trading cards or any of these other things, but just the amount of money that we've seen trying to find its way into assets and alternative assets. It, it's a lot. Does it last? It, it, I think uh, we, we sort of, we can't deny the effect of, of stimulus checks having some, some impact. But if I'm really thinking about what's shaping this, it's the fact that we're, we're in a world with either negative or near zero interest rates where there's a new generation yeah. of investors looking for places to put their wealth that, you know, frankly, are getting democratized now, right? If we, alternative assets 
as an investment, whether it was art or watches or collectibles, have been available, but they've only been available for a select few, for, for the very wealthy, because, because of the nature of the asset um, and, and because of the barriers to entry. And, and I think what we're seeing technology do, just like it's done across every other industry, is democratize access. And as that user experience gets better, yeah, the average person is, is way more informed about the opportunities and they see what the one percenters have access to and they say, well, I want that too. And I think that shift is, is, is full steam ahead. And, and there's a new generation that has just more skepticism about a lot of the traditional institutions and are very fluent with technology. And you put those two things together and present something that's growing. I mean, trading cards alone have outpaced the S&P 500 in the last decade um, in terms of growth. Wow. And, and, and you, you wow. see those numbers, and you're, I think, only going to see more momentum um, as more investors say, you know what, I want to do it a little different. And our, our portfolios are going to look a lot different than our parents and our grandparents just because we have access to more, more and more things we can invest in. Alexis, I love that you've been collecting Serena's cards. You are a great husband. Lior, before we go, what, what's your favorite trading card or the one that really kind of lured you in? Yeah, for me, it's the 1996 Kobe Bryant EX2000. It's something since I was eight that I always wanted to get. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, my parents wouldn't let me get the pack of cards where this card existed. It was probably one of the expensive ones. It was around $10. And so uh, in around 2016, <laughs> I finally was able to take some of the disposable income and go and get in. And that feeling, I just remember, you, you feel like a kid again. And so uh, I'm just super excited for other people to bring, bring back those feelings and get to experience it uh, as well. So how your parents wouldn't let you spend 10 bucks for the card pack. In 2016, you bought it for how much and it's worth how much now? I bought the box. So there were 24 packs for around $330 in 2016. I mean, now a PSA 10, so the best version or gem mint of that card is probably in excess of $30,000. I, I don't own it, unfortunately. I, I sold it off years ago. Uh, I was still in the trading phase, but uh, it's something that I, I do miss and hopefully will reacquire in the coming years. Wow. Leo or Alexis, I think I'm going to let my kids buy whatever Pokemon cards they want from now on. Um, thank you. Good to see both of you. I'm in a case. you the feeling of getting uh, my dad would never let me buy a whole box. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how much it costs. You, you know, Andrew or, or Becky, when you were a kid, there was a box of trading cards. I, I, I think it was better cards. because when you had to do it for, for a nickel, when I would get a red, I, I, I know what they mean by the feeling that like I got a Frank Robinson once in his in red in his uniform that the feeling that you get as a kid when you get someone on your team it's like i can th i can remember it now uh anyway um nfts we, we we like to take advantage of a lot of this uh, type stuff so uh i don't know where the bidding should start um on this but um this this is available <laughs> starting now 69 million would be a good place i think to start for this warhol-esque Squawk Box uh, NFT, and if we do get anywhere near 69 million, any, who's coming into work on on Monday? If we get 69 60, million, it. is it it's divided by three, and then I got to pay taxes, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh! Shark so you're tank coming in tomorrow? Okay. Shark Tank reruns on Monday. <laughs> I'll see you on Monday then. Uh, American. Oh, you're still coming in because it's only uh, okay. I'm I'm thinking American Greed. Stay. I love Stacy Keach. Uh, for Monday. No, we got to be here. Uh, but uh, let the right, bidding. Guys, you forget. With, yeah. They, they, with NFTs, the guy who is the creator gets a big chunk of right. it. So you're not we getting 69 million anyway. 
The guy that created it was some guy named Rob on, on, Twitter, on Twitter. He's probably mad we didn't. Well, he's on his way. We didn't, we didn't mention Give him credit. For a look at that Squawk non-fungible token prototype, check out our Twitter feed at Squawk CNBC and send us your ideas. Still to come on the podcast, music entrepreneur and 300 Entertainment CEO Kevin Lyles. He weighs in on the NFT remix for the music industry. It's uh, similar to anything that we used to write on our graffiti walls and now we write on our Facebook walls. We used to hand out flyers and now it's Twitter and uh, Instagram. I love it. I love that experience. That conversation and his expectations for live concerts right after this. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. You're listening to Squawk Pod. We've been so focused on the goings-on in Silicon Valley and Wall Street. What about Hollywood? It's March, again, which means it's award season. The Grammys are this Sunday, with performances expected by Taylor Swift, Billie Eilish, Cardi B, BTS, John Mayer, and Megan Thee Stallion. That last one, Megan, she's nominated for four Grammys. Best New Artist, Best Record, Best Rap Performance, and Best Rap Song. In part, thanks to TikTok. Now, I won't sing it for you, but you probably know it, and you probably know the classy, bougie, ratchet dance, whether it's from one of the millions of TikTok videos to the tune, Megan's collaboration with Beyonce for a remix, or from former President Obama's summer 2020 playlist. That's right. Megan's savage remix was part of the Obama's pandemic summer. Megan Thee Stallion is part of a slew of talented hip-hop artists at the record label 300 Entertainment. Young Thug, Gunna, Fetty Wap, Famous Dex are all represented by the almost 10-year-old label, which was started by our next guest. Kevin Lyles was an artist himself in the 90s age of hip-hop, but he worked his way up from intern to CEO at Def Jam Records and has been a music mogul ever since. Later, he worked at Warner Music managing Mariah Carey and Trey Songs. He's been around the musical block. Lyles joined us on Squawk Box this morning as we cross our soon-to-be-vaccinated fingers for a more normal music experience in the future. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Kevin, it's great to see you uh, this morning. Uh, once again, it's been a while. Um, what do you think that, when do you think we're all going to be back at a concert? And what do you think that experience is going to look and feel like, Kevin? Oh, well, first of all, good to see you again, Andrew. Hey, Becky and Joe. Uh, I think we're going to see some things happen in the summer. You know, you saw the Life is Beautiful Festival. Um, this happened in September. Um, we have Young Thug on it, you know, around the, the, the world. You have, you know, Draft Project or and the North. Some people have started to, to book their tours now, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be looking forward to, to going back this summer to uh, probably half venues or amphitheaters. Um, but again, you know, you got to, when you talk about music, you have to worry about three things, wearing a mask, living the songs you love, and 
loving it with the people who love music, you know? But what is that experience? I mean, do you think that people are going to be be asked to mask even outdoors? Uh, are people, if, if they are asked to mask, is it going to be hard to enforce? You know, there, there's a lot. It becomes complicated pretty quick. Well, it, it, it should be complicated because you're talking about people's lives. And if you think about all the security guards and the concession workers and the stagehands, you know, they're going to be a first time coming back to work. So even with the vaccinations uh, going at the pace that they're going, I think we still should wear a mask, you know, follow the CDC rules. But, you know, something about music, man, whether you have a mask on or, or not, it just uplifts your spirit. So, you know, I, I would say the sooner we can get back, the safer we can get back. And the more we can can love the people and put the people back to work who've been off of work, you know, for the past year. Is anybody talking about um, what they call vaccine passports, for example, or testing on site or things like that? Is that is that something you think we're going to see or not? All, all, all of the above. You know, we, we, we're, we're doing a great job. I, I think uh, now you see the truth is coming out, uh, what's happening around the world. And uh, I think in our industry, uh, we, every day we think about those, you know, half a billion people uh, that are not with us anymore. There are over 25 million people around the world. And who are we to, to not uh, to be, like I say, put ourselves in a position where we don't practice the safety. So whether it's testing on site, whether it's wearing a mask, uh, really, and you don't have anything over your ears. So you don't have anything over your eyes. So I think you'll be able to enjoy the music and, and be with the artists that you miss and love seeing their live performances. Kevin, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about this. I don't know if it's a mania. I don't know what to think about it. NFTs, non-fungible tokens. We saw this, this people art just go. We, we've got, uh, I know, a number of music artists that, that are going to be doing similar things, attaching it to their songs, meaning, meaning putting it uh, on the chain, if you will. Is this a game changer? <laughs> what happens here? Uh, I, I think it's fun. I, I, I don't think it's a, per se a, a disruptor. Uh, I, I think it's uh, similar to anything you know we used to write on our graffiti walls, and now we write on our Facebook walls. We used to hand out flyers, and now it's Twitter and uh, Instagram. Uh, you know, used to have all the other TV channels, and now you got YouTube. You know, I, I believe it's a it's a great thing. Um, with anything, you know, we have to watch the bubble effect. Uh, but I, I love it. I love that experience. That that the technical. That, technical uh, fan experience uh and we should be keep we should keep experimenting on i mean like the, the live audiences you know like the nfts um we have an artist dropping the nft with an album coming soon so uh i'm gonna ride the wave as long as it's there but i are, are artists loving this because this could be an opportunity for them to make a lot of money if i mean if they attach if, if they're if their songs are attached to a blockchain and they are going to collect royalties or there's an ability to sell the first version of the song even though it's digital to sell the first version right yeah, absolutely. Remember, you know, when Wu-Tang made that one album <laughs> and it sold for millions of, of, of dollars? Think about that first time when somebody figured out, well, you could do a meet and greet, you come to a show, a meeting artist, what that meant to you. Think about a one-on-one. Think about something that artists can continuously uh, trade around around the world and, and have ownership. You know, I, I think it's an amazing thing. And, and I look forward to a lot of the creators actually uh, uh, combining and doing and collaborating, doing things together. So, you know, it's going to be fun. The one and only Kevin Lyles. It's great to see you. I hope we get to see each other in person sooner or later, maybe at a concert. So thank you. It's great to see you. Bless you, man. You guys have to stay safe, wear a mask and find a song that you love. Okay. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. 
Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. This podcast, available for free wherever you listen, is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, and Caroline O'Brien. Thanks for listening today, all week, whenever you do. It's Friday. I'm coming up on the one-year mark of doing this podcast from my closet at home. Let's all take a break this weekend. We'll meet you right back here on Monday. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.